Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the best laid plans edition. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. It's Thursday, June 12th, and here with me today are podcast regulars Paula Simons, journal Hello, columnist. Sarah. Hello. And Miriam Ibrahim, provincial affairs reporter. Hello. Later on in the show, journal reporter Alex Subject, who I'm very pleased to say is joining the podcast for the first time, will be coming on to talk to us about the North Saskatchewan Regional Plan and why this is possibly the most important thing that is happening in provincial policy this summer. We can talk about that. All right. Today, we plan to talk about planning. The Wild Rose Party, though they are not going through a leadership contest, rolled out the first of nine platforms that they plan to introduce this summer. And Danielle Smith is also giving another major speech in British Columbia today. Will we hear anything new? And then, as I mentioned before, we're going to talk North Saskatchewan Regional Plan. So I've been wanting to talk about the first phase, I'm such a nerd, first phase (laughs) of the Wild Rose Moving Forward Alberta Plan, or what is it? Yes, Moving Alberta Forward Plan for a week because they unveiled it just after we recorded last week. So let's start there. Standing in front of uh, a C-train station in Calgary, uh, Danielle Smith described how her party would build urban and rural communities. Miriam, tell me, tell us, how does she plan to woo Calgary and Edmonton? Um, with the, the word that's on uh, the minds of both mayors and uh, I think a lot of people in both cities, uh, which is LRT, uh, and money for it, um, what they announced was $1.2 billion uh, that would be um, handed out to the cities over four years. And the funding would start in 2016 because, of course, the Wild Rose believes that they're going to form government in 2016. That's their plan, anyway. Yeah. Yes, that's that's the plan that they're planning for. Um, and so, um, and and my understanding is, is what they plan to do is, um, rather than have these sort of funds like the MSI fund and Green Trip fund, they're going to replace those um, with sort of a dedicated block of funding for municipalities that they would take, uh, I believe it's 10% from uh, surpluses they expect to see in their budget, as well as 10% from uh, provincial taxes, I believe. And and they say that this will lead to more predictable and stable funding rather than the unpredictable and unstable and inconsistent funding that they say um, the cities have seen under the current provincial government. Right. So 10% of all tax revenues and 10% of all surpluses. That wasn't the new part. But yeah, the LRT part was new. Now, I think we're going to have to actually crunch. I'm flipping through my papers here. Sorry about the paper noise. I think we're going to have to actually independently crunch all these numbers to see which actually is better, which would be better for municipalities. I know both the PCs and the Wild Rose say their plan is the better one. But Paula, what do you think about the party's approach and that this is the first policy they choose to roll out from their new moving forward Alberta strategy? I think it's very telling and I think it's very canny because certainly in the last provincial election, the Wild Rose made significant gains in rural and what you might call urban Alberta, uh, not so much in the cities, not even in Calgary and certainly not in Edmonton. Uh, At the same time, uh, Alison Redford, who ran on a very city-friendly platform, was not perceived to have necessarily delivered on what she had promised. So I think it's really very clever strategy for them to go after the cities. I think you know, there's always a danger that you're going to fe- leave rural voters feeling alienated. And of course, the way Alberta's seats are distributed, rural voters have a hugely disproportionate number of seats in the legislature. On the other hand, the Tory leadership race has three very urban candidates. Uh, so I think that the Wild Rose probably is relatively correct and safe in feeling that 
their rural vote is probably reasonably solid and that going after city votes is what they need to do. So you don't think this will alienate the the rural communities by saying, oh, Edmonton and Calgary are going to get this special $300 million a year for four years for LRT? Well, I think it is possible. I think it is possible that you will alienate an urban rump of voters who then, I suppose, might turn to social credit or some other new, you know, I mean, on the right in Alberta, there's a long history of splintering and splintering and splintering. But, you know, I think perhaps it's also possible that people realize that even in rural and urban uh, Alberta, that if you don't have strong cities with strong core infrastructure, that's not good for your province. Uh, You know, I suppose the real issue might be uh, smaller cities like Red Deer and Fort McMurray and Grand Prairie who might want to say, hey, you know, where's our piece of the pie? I mean, goodness knows Fort McMurray and Grand Prairie uh, and other cities also have significant infrastructure needs. But LRT has become a very big political buzzword in uh, urban centers. And certainly, I mean, I was at the press conference where uh, uh, Ronna Ambrose of the Federal Conservatives and uh, Wayne Drysdale announced the last round of funding for Edmonton's LRT to Mill Woods. And there was some frustration expressed by city councillors, such as Andrew Knack, that they're tired of having to go through this political ritual, doffing the cap and begging for money every time. Oh, please, sir, may I have some more? And then the provincial and federal politicians have a press conference and announce, oh, hooray, we're going to give you some money. Here, you lucky, lucky little city, have some money um, on sufferance from us. And I think there is a growing feeling in Edmonton and Calgary that they're tired of always being at the little kid table, having to always beg and plead for the infrastructure dollars that they need for core infrastructure. And that a government that promises long-term, stable, predictable funding instead of this song and dance and, you know, and, and you know, please, sir, may I have another, uh, that could be a winning formula. Did you get a sense, Miriam, of why they started with this particular policy? I know you were on vacation last week, but have you had a chance to figure out like why they started here? With LRT? Mm. I, no, I mean, I think we can surmise that it's it's a very populist in the sense that it's hard to offend, I think, most people when you're, when you're telling them that you want to provide them with a predictable funding model for LRT, which is what the mayors have been clamoring for. Um, and I think Paula's right when she talks about the fact that the Wild Rose probably feels pretty secure in their rural base. I mean, the fact they have basically all of the rural seats in southern Alberta speaks to that. Uh, but at the same time, they did introduce uh, another policy that they say would help sort of smaller communities around cities, which is a policy that would lift the cap on water allocation licenses in the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Ooh. Um, and what they say is that doing that would allow the local communities around um, the city of Calgary to develop more freely. Um, and they point out that Calgary currently holds... Um, water license allocations, uh, water allocation licenses that far exceed its current needs, um, and and that Calgary can sort of use that in in negotiations and in, as a, as a sort of a leveraging tool. And that's likely to be far more controversial than than LRT, which has become mother's milk. Right. I mean, and and this to me was fascinating because in the last election, they other other than talking about the city center airport and why it should stay open for Edmonton, municipal issues just really did not get a lot of attention. They or by this party, I mean that that or, or, or as I, or as you say, they were they they were negative. You know, what I mean, uh, right. but Daniel Smith also came out against the Royal Alberta Museum and the renovations to the federal building, which were major issues for downtown renewal in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. So this. 
as with everything else the Wild Rose has done in the last 18 months, is all about being a different new Wild Rose party. And I'm going to not get offended by the fact that their Moving Alberta Forward picture has what looks like a picture of the Calgary skyline. I'm I'm not going to get hung up on that. I think, <laughs> think we, we can understand that it's got a pretty cool skyline with the needle. Okay, so this is not the only place where they've been talking about new policy ideas. Today, we are expecting Danielle Smith to deliver a speech in British Columbia. Is that right, Miriam? On a different topic. Tell us about that. Uh, She will be delivering a lunchtime speech in Vancouver to a uh, sort of small business crowd. And she's going to be uh, talking about a sort of new policy idea that she wants to bring forward, a conversation that she says needs to begin about opening one, one sort of corridor for for energy transportation needs for pipeline needs um, through the north of the western provinces of Canada basically from northern Ontario through Manitoba through Alberta and and, and to British Columbia and um, using this sort of as a means instead of having to do she says you know one-off negotiations each time uh, a new pipeline application comes through rather she talks about sort of introducing this one kilometer wide corridor that uh, companies would then have a right of way through. And huh. she, she's using sort of very aspirational John A. McDonald national dream kind of rhetoric saying that this is, you know, the national dream 2.0. I don't think she says that. I just said that. Um, <laughs> uh, but the idea being that if you had a dedicated transportation and utility corridor through northern Canada, that you could have development around it, that you could have far fewer of these very long drawn out uh, uh, hearings about uh, environmental impact, you'd sort of have, a st- again, she wouldn't use the word sterilized, but you'd have an area that would be... No, it would be the opposite. It would allow bit, for yeah. economic growth, I think. That's right. Yes. Well, so, so the idea is that, you know, you'd have this area and you'd say, okay, we're going to sacrifice this one kilometer of, of Canada, and that will be for uh, pipelines, utility corridors, you know, future other kinds of industrial uh, applications. Yeah, I was, when I heard that she was going to be giving a speech on energy, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, okay, we're going to hear another national energy strategy speech that's kind of vague and doesn't really pin things down exactly. Uh, But there's a, this is fascinating to me. So it sounds like what she's described is here in Edmonton, we'd be used to the transportation utility corridor, right? Around the Anthony Henday, or that's where the Anthony Henday is, this ring around Edmonton that was specifically zoned to become the place where the big power lines go, the pipelines and the roads. And so the idea is, yes, to run something like this across, as you, as you said, the provinces. Huh. It's really interesting. I can't wait to see what the reaction is well, to this. It, it's in some ways, you know, What's, what's the line from Yes Minister? It's a very courageous speech. Um, I mean, I have to give her points. It is a courageous speech in the sense that it's going gonna, it's gonna to get her a lot of flack. I mean, uh, Daniel Smith is basically saying that we've become too prissy and too nimby in the sense that nothing is ever developed without a huge confrontation and hullabaloo. And she makes points about British Columbia saying that all of the population is concentrated in very specific areas because of, of the mountainous terrain, it's harder to build. So what she's proposing is in some ways a very simple plan and in some ways a little bit of a simplistic plan because it's not so easy to say in Canada, all right, well, we're just going to reserve a kilometer wide corridor across the country because now you're going through 
difficult terrain. You're going through land that is claimed by First Nations. You're going maybe through land where treaties are still in dispute or land where treaties have been signed. Um, And it's fine for Smith to say, oh, lots of people will want to develop and this will be great for the economy along that corridor. A lot of other people are really not going to want a one kilometer wide swath of development through their wilderness. Yeah, you'd have to really, you'd have to located in the right place and, and I think she acknowledges this probably wouldn't be a straight line straight across the the mm-hmm. country it would have to zig and Meander zag a little, a little bit, bit. Um, huh. so let me ask you why now are we talking about this it's very interesting first I think it's it's interesting that that she chose to talk about that in in Vancouver but you know aside from that the fact that that we see the wild rose rolling out in their in their um, here what's it called the moving Alberta forward solutions for the Alberta of tomorrow this policy book and uh, it's nine policies that they're going to be rolling out you know the the fixed election date isn't until 2016 but what's interesting is I think a lot of parties right now are really preparing for the potential for a snap election to be called once the progressive conservatives elect their new leader and premier especially maybe if that person doesn't currently hold a seat I don't know and so I I think that's interesting (laughs) they've just um, opened up some nominations in in a lot of constituencies as well and so I I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that begin once the summer is over especially with the NDP once they've selected their uh, new leader as well yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting. I don't I don't think a lot of people are betting that they're, we're going to make it to 2016 for the election, but it is fascinating. While Mr. Prentice has to talk all about planes, Daniel Smith gets to talk all about plans. Yes, and I guess we've, I realize too that we have a decision on the Northern Gateway pipeline. The federal With, government has to say within a week, yay or nay. Yeah, within a week. So this, I guess, is a good, is a good time to be talking about, well, what are the alternatives if this one doesn't work? Or even if this does get approved by the federal government, whether it ever actually gets in the ground is a whole other question. On the ground back here in Alberta, there's another issue underway that is, I think, very, very important. So important that we wrote an editorial saying, you should go out to these public hearings. There is very serious planning work underway right now under the auspices of the North Saskatchewan Regional Plan. Alex is here now with us to talk about this. This is not the first regional plan that's been developed for the province, but this is the the third one in a series. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is? Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit daunting because there is so much involved here. It's a massive plan to deal with uh, land, water, air quality, uh, recreational areas, all sorts of things that really under one umbrella, like I said, it can seem a little bit daunting. So the idea, though, is is to have a plan for this North Saskatchewan region that looks at uh, cumulative impacts of different industries and different uses on land so you can deal with them. So if you have oil and gas exploration, if you have logging, if you have land development, if you have agriculture all happening in the same area, and those can all have, you know, different impacts on waterways. But if each are regulated by their own set of regulations, their own industry regulations, but they're not kind of dealt with comprehensively, they're all going to have individual impacts on waterways. So the idea is let's let's look at this cumulatively. How is that going to impact, again, things like water or air quality, but also things like, do we need more conservation areas? Do we need more parks in this region? So there is a lot going on there. Uh, and I think that it can be hard for people to wrap their heads around, but I think it is important just because these are things that will are supposed to set the tone for, for land planning in this area for, for decades to come. When I first started looking into this, because I saw the public hearing notices of the community meetings, I thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, right along the North Saskatchewan River. And then I looked and realized, no, this is an 
85,000 square kilometer area that goes from Banff. It's weird to think of Edmonton being lumped in with Banff, but it is. And then to Lloydminster. So have you gotten any sense yet of what some of the issues are going to be along this route? Like I said, I think that there's so many things that are going to be discussed. I mean, if you want to go out towards Banff and uh, look at the Rocky Rocky Mountains there, I was just talking to someone yesterday who was talking about the need to maybe designate Bighorn Backcountry, which is an area that I had never even heard of before, but is apparently a real recreational gem as an official park. He's saying, you know, why has this been just sort of left? It's a huge recreational area, but it's not getting any of the supports that a proper park would have. So you've got something like that way over on the western side of the province, and then you come up to the Edmonton region, you can look at air quality levels in something like the industrial heartland region. How is that going to be set? I think for me, something that was a little bit surprising and something I need to still do more research on is, don't we already have these air quality limits and water quality limits? And I I get the sense that there's sort of, again, regulations in different areas, but not necessarily an overarching umbrella that that will tell us exactly what we want these qualities to be. I'm trying to think about some other things. We we talk about parks, we talk about air quality, and then you do have things like the North Saskatchewan River itself. And again, what's happening with the water quality there and, and the, again, the very Various uses that are that are happening on the land and what the effects are on the river and other waterways. This, as I said earlier, is the third plan that's been in development. The first one was up in the Athabasca region, right? The that's oil right. sands area, and that because that was deemed to be the where there was the biggest, I guess, crisis in in land use with all the various developments. And that ended up coming up with five. They set they've set aside a fifth of the area for conservation. And I think there's even arguments about whether that was enough or not. Yeah, so we did have a, a huge swath of land up there. like And like you said, there there's really intense land use happening there and, and tremendous growth anticipated for the region. So it probably does make sense to start up there. I was also talking to someone, though, who said, yes, we those areas have been decided that these will be conservation areas, but have they actually received their legal designation yet, two years on? I, I think that's actually a question still. Um, and if you look at something like the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan, where they're still in the draft stage. They haven't come up with a final plan just yet. Which covers Calgary and again from border to border, right? That's correct. So this this huge area down south. And I did just speak to someone with, with an environmental conservation group who said that, you know, they were hugely disappointed with, with what they saw in the draft plan just in terms of trade-offs between industry and uh, recreation or nature areas. They, they thought that those trade-offs with land use just weren't made. But, you know, still a little bit hopeful to see what changes might be made by the time the final plan comes out. And it's, it is so important because the North Saskatchewan River is so so integral to the history of this province and the history of this region as a transportation waterway, as a natural wildlife corridor. We need to make sure that we are protecting it and also that we are getting the greatest benefit from it as, I guess if you can call it this, a public resource, a public utility. I mean, for years after Kananaskis country was established after the Calgary Winter Olympics, People talked about, you know, when was there going to be a Kananaskis North? And for some time now, there have been people like Saul Rollinger uh, in Edmonton who've been arguing that we need to make the North Saskatchewan Corridor our true gem as a community asset. And I think a lot of Edmontonians, we love the River Valley, but we take it a little bit for granted. And we don't think about it. We think about it being in Edmonton, and we don't think about where it's been before it comes or where it's going after this. So I think it is really important that we have some kind of provincial policy that looks at the river, you know, at the watershed as a whole. 
But I think it's also very important that as Edmontonians, we take an active interest in this because the river is one of the defining characteristics of this city. It's one of our greatest natural assets, and it's something that we want to protect and also to make sure we get the highest, best use of it as a recreational site and as a tourist attraction for our community. Are we biting off more than we can chew, though, by doing it in such big plans? That's my only worry, and I guess they kind of go along the watershed. But, you know, Banff is so different from Lloyd Minster, and, you know, Edmonton is so different from Provost or where, you know, like it goes so far and so far south. I'm just worried that it just ends up becoming, in the end, not not a particularly useful document. I think that that's something that was brought up with some of the folks that I was talking to when writing the initial story about this was just what sort of, uh, how will the plan exactly be implemented? How specific will it be? Um, how comprehensive will it be? And how, how explicit will it, be? will it be? Like, it sounds great, right? Like the idea there to, to look at cumulative impacts on the environment and have a long range plan and to really look at all these things. Of course, that sounds wonderful. And it should be you know, it, it should be our default to, to be looking at at the at the scene as a whole. But on the other hand, it's it's all about the implementation, and, and I think that still remains to be seen how it's going to be done. I think the only thing we know for sure is that from the first two plans is that this is going to take a couple a couple good solid years of work to develop, and then even still, we're waiting for those actual you know cumulative impact numbers for the Athabasca area, for example. And that plan's been out for more than a year, so. I have a feeling we'll get to talk about this many times moving forward. People have a lot of time to learn about it. There you they go. do, they do. But they should go to the community <laughs> meetings now, which, you know, I don't normally say it, but I, I think we should all give our two cents now. So we'll see where this one goes. Thanks, Alex, for giving us that update. So we always plan to do good stuff from the gallery. No matter what, it's always in the plan. That's the one thing I can guarantee. So let's go to that, good stuff from the gallery, where we suggest something that for those people who like us, like politics, we think they might like to watch or listen to or read. Who wants to start? Who's so eager and keen to start? I am. Yay! I'm always eager and keen to start. Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, that people go to the Washington Post website for the most uh, comprehensive coverage of one of the biggest political upsets of modern American political history, which is Eric Cantor's uh, defeat in the Republican primary to a Tea Party candidate named David Bratt. Now, Eric Cantor uh, was, up until this week, the Republican majority House leader in the House of Representatives, uh, considered to be the second most powerful person in the Republican Party, uh, widely looked at as the next speaker. And he lost in the Republican primary. I've been looking at some numbers from the Washington Post. As of May, Cantor had spent $5 million on his election campaign, and he lost to a little-known economics professor who had spent $120,000 on his campaign. As the Washington Post noted, Eric Cantor spent more catering steak dinners than than his uh, opponent, David Bratt, had spent on his entire campaign. Bratt is such an outsider that even the Tea Party establishment hadn't backed him. He got the support of talk radio hosts in Washington. Bratt has a PhD in economics, but also a degree in divinity from Princeton, and has sort of complicated theories about Protestantism and capitalism, and he's a huge Ayn Rand kind of a guy, libertarian. So this has sent uh, shockwaves through the Republican establishment, because um, this is a David who slew a Goliath in a very 
very real sense. Nobody knows what this is going to mean because the Democrats, having assumed that there was no point in really running anybody in this race against Cantor, have put up um, somebody that the Washington Post on their website apparently couldn't find a photograph of the, <laughs> of the Democratic <laughs> candidate. Right. So um, uh, this has been really interesting um, because at a time when a lot of attention had been on uh, the Democrats and Hillary Clinton and sort of what's going on in the Democratic Party, this uh, defeat of Cantor has really put the spotlight back on family feuding within the Republicans. And I imagine that uh, here in Alberta, it, it may resonate too, because, you know, um, if you're looking at uh, the Wild Rose uh, as sort of semi-akin to the Tea Party movement and uh, Jim Prentice as kind of like the Eric Cantor figure in this in this parallel story. I suspect a lot of people in the Wild Rose and PC parties here are going to be looking very closely at this and wondering what, if anything, it might forebode for what's going to happen here. Ooh, okay. Thank you for that suggestion. We'll put up that link. Alex, got a good stuff for us? Sure. My good stuff is a piece on the Daily Beast written by Arthur Chu, and it's called Your Princess is in Another Castle. And uh, the st- the piece was written in the wake of the Isla Vista killings. The young man who, among his many misogynist rants and his manifesto, talked uh, you know, said many terrible things. And one of the things that he talked about is how women weren't interested in him, you know, sometimes no matter what he did, they just didn't see his charms and whatnot. And Arthur Chu looks at um, nerd culture, and, and he uses that term. So uh, I'll follow him on that and, and just talks a little bit about how there has been in, in media for a long time, this, this sort of narrative where nerds can just try hard enough and the woman will like them, right, that they can do all sorts of ploys and ruses and, and, and games to, to make women like them. And, and the message seems to be that they deserve these women, no matter how much they say no, or how much they say they're not interested, that they just have to try hard enough. And he really provides such a compelling read on how that thinking really has to change. And he does a look at some really uncomfortable moments from 1980s movies that I'm sure I watched and thought was really, were really funny at the time and now look back and think, no, that's that's not cool. It's this really interesting look at this particular culture and a look at how it perceives women and relationships and how they should or should not work. And I'd highly recommend it. It was a, it was a fabulous read, really well done by Arthur Chu. Okay, thanks. I'm going to read that one. I haven't yet, but I, I'd heard a little bit about it, but your recommendation has pushed me over the edge. I will seek it out. Miriam, final good stuff of the episode. Mine, um, my good stuff for this week was actually published in May. Um, it's from the June issue of The Atlantic. It's the cover story by uh, Ta-Nehisi Cotes, a really brilliant writer. I'm only recommending it now because it's 15,000 words and I was recently on vacation and sliced out a big chunk of time to, to finally read it. Um, and I'm really glad I did. Um, so it's it's called The Case for Reparations and uh, in it he talks about um, the history of um, slavery and um, you know Jim Crow laws, institutionalized racism and segregation and um, racist housing policies in America and how all of these things have contributed to um, um, black America's uh, current sort of disadvantaged socioeconomic state, their, um, you know, worse health outcomes, worse overall well-being, right? Um, and I I won't say too much more about it because nothing I say will be as eloquent as, as Cote's writing, but I really, really recommend it. It's um, sparked sort of a national discussion on this subject in America, and I think it sort of could offer a doorway into having sort of a similar discussion in in Canada you know in terms of First Nations and and um, 
in that situation here. But I think it's really interesting um, subject. The, the reaction to it has been really interesting as well. But in it, he basically argues that, you know, America as a nation can't be whole until it really um, tackles this subject head on and, and actually grapples with, with its uh, the consequences of all of these um, sort of institutionalized uh, things. I told you I wouldn't be as eloquent as he was. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, you had 15,000 words you yeah. just said to sum up. That's, that's a lot. So we'll put the link on there and I look forward to reading that one as well. That's it for this week. If you're new to the podcast or just missed a few episodes that you want to catch up on, you can find the old vintage shows uh, as well as a weekly video segment on edmontonjournal.com. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash the press gallery, where you can uh, offer suggestions. Help us plan future episodes. What do you want to hear us talk about? With the summer coming up and things slowing down a little bit in politics, there's definitely a chance for us to maybe get a little bit off the beaten track. So, and it doesn't just have to be off the beaten track into the North Saskatchewan River. We can go other places too. You can find us on SoundCloud as well and on iTunes. Just search the press gallery, Edmonton Journal. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week in the Press Gallery.